Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm John Fusco. I am Emily Booter. And I'm Charles Hain. It is January 12th, 2017, and on this week's show, the award season gets golden and globy, George Lucas is opening up his own museum, our thoughts from CES, and the science behind producing warm and cool colors for your film. Hello, everybody. I am not Liz Nord, but I am John Fusco, and we are still in downtown Brooklyn, New York, here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on film projects. Liz is sick, so it's just me, Emily, and Charles, as you heard from the intro. But, you know, I think we got a great episode for you today. What do you think about that, guys? I think so, too. Cool. Yes. Obviously, the big news in the world of cinema This week is the Golden Globes. It's the second most important golden thing happening in the news this week. And we had Emily on that live on Twitter. And wow, some great tweets, Emily. Thank you for that. Oh, thanks. They're my specialty. (laughs) You are a gem, a marvel. (laughs) Are, Are you good enough at Twitter to run for president? You know, it depends on your definition of good. I don't think I use enough exclamation points, and I could definitely use more all caps. All right, we'll work on that. As you may have heard, La La Land swept the Golden Globes on Sunday. It won in all seven categories for which it was nominated, which is the most Golden Globe wins for a single film in the history of the award show, a record that was previously held by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975 and Midnight Express in 1978, which each won six Golden Globes. That's, I didn't know that. Um, It's, what categories were, I mean, I didn't even watch them. What categories did it win? Well, it won... Both musical score and best original song, best musical or comedy um, film, um, the most contentious, a bunch of other ones, but the most contentious one was best screenplay. I think people were, it was up against Moonlight for best screenplay. Oh. Was it up against Moonlight? Well, if it was, are the, are the screenplays like divided up into... Uh, the way picture is best picture, yeah. comedy or musical and best drama, was screenplay also divided like that? Or is it just sort of best screenplay in general? Oh, I think they do best adapted and best original, like the Oscars, and I think that these were both best original, they were both up for best original. It was up against Moonlight for best screenplay. It was also up against Teller High Water, which is a really good screenplay, I hear, even though I haven't seen the film. Nocturnal Animals and Manchester by the Sea, which I, if I had been awarding the, these uh, globes you speak of, I would have given it to either Moonlight or Manchester. And you saw La La Land, too? You've seen all of these movies, haven't you? Yes. Hmm. For what it's worth. <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> um, so there were other multiple award winners that night, too. Atlanta, the show, the Netflix show Crown, and L and the People versus O.J. Simpson all won multiple awards. Moonlight actually almost came up empty-handed all night. It was one of the last award winners announced, and thank God it took home its just desserts with Best Motion Picture Drama. That's actually a really interesting one. I think it's complicated for award ceremonies to reward the actors because of, if you haven't seen Moonlight, it's the story of someone over the course of a life, so it's divided into thirds, so none of the actors have more than about a third of the movie in screen time, which I think end up might end up hurting, like they're all amazing performances, they're career making performances, but they might not get many awards because they don't have a lot of screen time. But man, it was the best movie last year, so it is so great that it got recognized as being the best movie. Agreed, and I'm glad it was not up against La La Land. That was in a separate category under musical and comedy. So So now do you think that La La Land is gonna be the one in the Oscars, or do you think that Moonlight still has a 
chance at taking home that. The jury's still out. I mean, the the interesting thing about the Golden Globes is that it doesn't actually get voted on by, by very many people. It's a very select few group, while the Academy is is much bigger. So I'm not totally sure. I think it'll also really boil down to how guilty the predominantly white members of the Academy feel about the Oscars so white drama last year. Like Moonlight. You can't get whiter than La La Land. Yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Creed, I still say Creed was robbed. I still can't believe Creed was robbed. And uh, this is maybe an opportunity to, to rebalance some of the previous drama. Speaking of snubs, there were some snubs on the, at the Golden Globes, too. HBO, every single show, including Game of Thrones and Westworld, was snubbed. So that's an interesting thing because most of the time, HBO kind of dominates the Golden Globes. You know, maybe that has something to do with the fact that streaming services are just getting so much bigger as far as like producing their own content and distributing it around. Did Stranger Things get nominated for anything or win anything? I don't think so, right? I mean, for me, it all boils down to one word, which is Atlanta. Yeah. Donald Glover is a genius. Yeah. I need to watch it. It's I so keep good. hearing that I need to watch it from everyone, and it's time. It is time. Yeah. And, like, HBO can't compete with Atlanta. Nope. I would have loved to see Silicon Valley win something, but that, oh, too, yeah. also got a snub. But I think Atlanta was definitely the best. Silicon uh, Valley has won in the past, though, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. won, I think, last year it won. It continues to be good. Yeah. But Atlanta. Of all the history-making things that happened on Sunday night's Golden Globes, it was definitely Meryl Streep's speech in which she lambasted Donald Trump for many, many things um, in front of a rapt audience that took everyone by surprise and blew everyone out of the water. Uh, one of her best quotes from the speech was, when the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. End quote. Mic drop. <laughs> but the Golden Globes were not the only awards that were announced this week. The nominations for the BAFTA, which is the British equivalent of the Oscars. There, La La Land got 11 nominations, which is kind of shocking. Arrival and Nocturnal Animals followed closely behind with nine each. Of the British nominations, I was very happy to see the excellent films I, Daniel Blake and Notes on Blindness, which I actually deemed on our 2016 list as the year's most egregiously underseen film. They both received nominations, multiple, and they're both incredible. I guess the biggest snub of the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes combined is Martin Scorsese's silence, which was effectively silenced in both receiving zero award nominations. Poor guy. Also, a shout out to Alison Schroeder, the writer of Hidden Figures, for the nomination for a BAFTA. Alice and I went to school together. Oh, cool. Always exciting to see people you know go far. There were some below-the-line awards announced this week, too. The Cinema Audio Society, which awards Outstanding Achievement in Sound Mixing, awarded Doctor Strange, Hacksaw Ridge, La La Land, Rogue One, and Sully. The Producers Guild of America, which awards Outstanding Producer of Theatrical Motion Picture, awarded Arrival, Deadpool, Fences, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Hidden, Hidden Figures, Not Hidden Fences, La La Land, Lion, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. The Writers Guild of America was a bit more indie-leading. It awarded Hell or High Water, La La Land, Loving, Manchester by the Sea, and Moonlight. And the American Cinema Editors Society awarded all of the usual suspects, but also, interestingly, Yorgos Lanthimos' The Lobster. 
So switching gears a little bit, George Lucas is building a museum of narrative art in L.A. This was announced on Tuesday, I believe. Apparently, George Lucas has enough stuff to fit in a museum, which isn't that big of a surprise considering all of the film artifacts he himself has created. He has over 40,000 film-related pieces, to be exact. After trying to build the museum in his hometown of San Francisco, also Emily and my hometown, which I think Emily is going to get into a little bit later, uh, it didn't work. So he finally struck a deal with the city of Los Angeles to break ground on the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, a futuristic 275,000 square foot museum designed by Chinese architect Ma Yansong. It's important to note that this will not just be a Star Wars museum, okay? Lucas's collection, worth $1 billion, will showcase his life's work, from Star Wars concept art to props. It also includes 40,000 paintings, illustrations, and film-related items from throughout cinema history, including storyboards and costumes from The Wizard of Oz and Casablanca. In addition to what the mayor says is the best collection of Norman Rockwell paintings on Earth, the museum will be home to art from Howard Chandler Christie, N.C. Wyeth, and Max Field Parish. It's slated to open in 2021. I personally think this is really great news. Obviously, San Francisco and Chicago are wonderful cities, but they are wonderful cities with a lot of other things going for them. And as much as I love L.A., L.A. has always been a little thin on the ground in terms of cultural institutions. Also, it's crazy L.A. doesn't have a movie museum. New York, which has a history of movies, has a movie museum, the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, which, if you're ever visiting New York, is totally awesome and completely worth a trip and has great screening series and, like, really cool movie artifacts. And it's crazy there's nothing like that in Los Angeles, which is the epicenter of North American entertainment. And uh, I'm really excited that this is going to L.A. And, yes, Lucas is a Northern California guy, but the original Star Wars, I mean, he went to USC, and I believe this is in Exposition Park, not that far from the USC campus. And a lot of the original Star Wars production was still in L.A. Industrial Light and Magic was still in San Fernando Valley for the original New Hope. I think they didn't move north until Return of the Jedi. So I think this is a good fit for his collection. I think it's a good thing for L.A. And uh, hopefully, I mean, I don't know if anybody saw Bright Lights over the weekend, the Debbie Reynolds documentary. But like, she put all this work into amassing 40000 original Hollywood costumes and couldn't find anywhere for there to go in L.A. And you're like, L.A. does not do a very good job of paying attention to its history because that's the whole L.A. thing. And it is nice to see somebody doing like a, hey, L.A., there is a history and a past. Yeah, but L.A. does have Disneyland, which has a Star Wars exhibit already, so... Well, actually, I was going to sort of arise some NorCal, SoCal, as we called it in high school, feud, um, that basically goes back to biblical times. But listening to Charles, I kind of have changed my mind. I think that it, L.A. is probably deserves its own movie museum. And although George Lucas essentially brought the film industry to the Bay Area, which is why I was going to argue that it should be there. And it's also the headquarters of Lucasfilm, ILM and Skywalker Sound and Pixar, which doesn't have anything to do with Lucas. Pixar does have something to do with Lucas. Lucas sold it to Jobs. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. forgot about that. No, I think Silicon Valley needs a Silicon Valley museum. I think there needs to be a history of technology going back to Hewlett Packard somewhere in the Bay Area. But I think LA needs a movie museum. And you can call it narrative art all you want, George. We know this about movies. Well, I think, uh, Charles, you won that debate. Woohoo! Good for you, LA. You win this one. San Francisco is still better. LA wins all. 
So before we move on to gear news, um, I just want to say a couple things about the Berlinale and South by Southwest lineups, which have not been announced in full, but they did announce the main premieres and opening night films. So Danny Boyle's Train Spotting and Logan, the newest entry into the Marvel franchise. Train Spotting 2, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. But did they did they get permission to call it T2? Yeah, they got permission to call it T2. Cuz yeah, the only holdout on that was Cameron. So evidently Cameron was like, "Yeah, T2 is the right title." I I don't think it's the right title, but you know, that's <laughs> It kind you of know, sounds like Terminator 2. Well, that's what yeah, cuz James Cameron directed Terminator 2, so they had to <laughs> get permission from him to call it T2. It was originally going to be called Porno, which is what the uh, source novel is based on, the source novel being the sequel to Train Spotting. So I don't really, and I think Porno is not a bad name. I guess it like kind of comes with some connotations, but... It definitely would be difficult to Google. That's the only thing. That's true. That's true. I mean, T2 is not going to be that much easier to Google. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, those two are premiering at Berlinale, and South by Southwest is premiering Terrence Malick's Song to Song, which I'm personally very excited about. Either it could be amazing or terrible, given his recent critical flops. But it stars Rooney Mara, Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender, and Natalie Portman, and it's about the music scene in Austin. And it's basically a who's who of early 2000s indie rock, which makes me very happy inside. Lakey Lee, The Black Lips, Arcade Fire, Fleet Foxes, and Iron and Wine all make personal appearances in the movie. Cool. Well, and now we will move on to gear news. Charles, let's hear what you thought about CES. So I have a hot take about CES, which is I think the internet has kind of ruined CES, which... Uh, I think everybody else has already realized that. So of like the three most relevant filmmaking bits of news from CES this year, which I would say are like the final release of the GH5, the first public display of the Crystal Sky Monitors from DJI, and the re-release of Ektachrome, two had already had most of all the specs out on the internet, not even in leaks, like in official releases from the manufacturers. and Ektachrome was the only real surprise. I feel like trade shows were trade shows are great if you can go to physically touch the objects, but are not the main place to get news anymore. Um, CES is still a huge event, but it's important for filmmakers. is really going to vary year to year based on where technology is. This year, it was all about smart cars, automated driving, integrating voice commands into your smart car, putting the Amazon Echo into everything. We started to see voice commands leak into action cameras this year. and Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it makes total sense, right? Like, you have an action cam, you strap it to your forehead, and then you're like, all right, roll camera. So you don't have to roll camera for the full 20 minutes. Uh, There are a couple cameras. I think the Hero 5 and another one, maybe the Garmin, listen to your voice. It's not going to be perfect, but I think my guess is next year CES, we're going to start to see a lot more voice commands for filmmaking tools. To that end, actually, just today, there was a rumor going around that Adobe has a photo editing app that listens to voice commands, so you can, like, look at a photo and be like, make that look more awesome, and it will make it look more awesome. It's like, eventually, you'll be on set, and you'll be able to just be like, okay, we're going to turn the light down, like, 30%, 30%, you know? Yeah. More film jobs are going to be automated in the future, so... Yeah, you'll be able to sit in an edit suite and look at an edit and be like, make this edit faster... And then Premiere will just do it. Scary, kind of. Yeah. Scary. The biggest news for filmmakers, of course, was Kodak is bringing Ektachrome back from the dead. This is kind of really unexpected. Of course, reports of film and Kodak's demise have long been overly exaggerated. Major filmmakers keep shooting it. 
TV shows shoot at Westworld shot film. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Kodak continues to soldier on. And um, that's not the surprise. Re-releasing vintage stocks kind of is the surprise, especially in older technology like Ektachrome. If you follow the efforts of people like the Impossible Project, who are working to re-release early Polaroid technology, they were really public in talking about how complicated it is to recreate an old stock, because it's not just about the equipment that makes the stock, it's also the whole industrial pipeline. It's all of the raw materials that go into it, but supply chains change over time. Environmental rules change, safety rules change, so sometimes it can be hard to even get the raw materials you need to make something that in the 60s would have been super easy to buy. Re-releasing the beloved Ektachrome is a massive statement by Kodak that they're still deep in the game and a large argument for film into the future. Now, Kodak's chief marketing officer also just hinted in an interview that Kodachrome might be returning as well. Although, honestly, that process, which predates Ektachrome, is way more complicated. And I don't know, I'm not getting my hopes up. Those of us who remember the end of Duane's, which was the last lab in America still processing Kodachrome in Kansas, uh, they had like a big event where they announced a year in advance. They were like, this is going to be the last date for our Kodachrome bath. And everybody had to ship their Kodachrome in in time. It's just hard to believe Kodachrome will come back. Um, I would love to get to send some Coda to Duane's again, but it just seems unlikely. Then again, I would have said Ektachrome was unlikely, and here we are. So just briefly, can you describe exactly what makes Ektachrome so special as far as film stock? So Kodachrome and Ektachrome are both reversal processes, which means the actual physical piece of film that rolls through the camera, once you process it, you could, I mean, if you're a still photographer, cut it up, put it in a slide thing and look at it physically, put it in your slide projector, which everybody used to own one, shine it on the wall. For filmmakers, it means... Once you put it through the bath, you can put it through a projector, project it on the wall. Slide films or reversal films, as we call them in the motion picture industry, tend to be a little contrastier. So you have to really get your exposure right to nail it. But very fine grained, very good color saturation once your exposure is nailed. Exochrome is not as saturated as Kodachrome. Kodachrome is like the Kodak look. There's nothing that quite looks like Kodachrome, no matter how hard digital things try and emulate it. But Ektachrome was also popular because it's much more sensitive in low light situations than Kodachrome. And so you ended up seeing a wide variety. I mean, it was like the National Geographic stock for 50 years. So much of what we think about as color imagery is built around ectochrome. I think that's really cool that it that it's low light sensitive because it can kind of build a bridge between uh, digital and film cinematographers. Yeah. Well, it is nowhere near as low light sensitive as digital. <laughs> it is. It's one of those things where, like, from the perspective of Kodachrome, which was 40 ISO, it was exciting. But for folks who are used to running around shooting with a GH5 by streetlight at night, they might be surprised to discover it's still kind of slow. But it's a beautiful stock. The other nice thing about Kodachrome especially, Kodachrome should last 500 years. The way in which it's processed, you stick it in a closet, 500 years later, you should be able to see your images. And that like remains one of the big arguments for film over digital. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think that maybe you know you you mentioned at the beginning um, that Co- Kodak is sort of making this whole death of film thing something larger than it should be, or uh, I mean, than it actually is. Not that the emergence of this technology isn't a big thing, and that it shouldn't be a big thing. But you know, I just read that uh, Christopher Nolan is actually making he made Dunkirk with like two different blends of film stock, so that he could like make it look as good as you can without using digital. So maybe they are developing these sort of, or bringing these sort of stocks back just for these big name directors. Do you think that that's a possibility? I don't, you know, I don't know the numbers on Kodak. So I honestly, I know that in the past, uh, you know, famously Kodak used to have relationships in the television world where there was so much volume that Kodak would keep a stock alive for a TV show. So there was a film stock 5279, which was a 500T. They came out with a new 500T 5218, and they were going to retire the 79, but apparently CSI shot everything on the 79 and went to Kodak and said, hey, Kodak, we shoot on the 79. That is our stock. We are not changing the look of our show. And so Kodak kept making 79 as long as that version of CSI was on the air, which was like five years longer than Kodak planned on making that stock. And that's like a publicly demonstrated like, oh, we are keeping this stock alive for them. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were situations where Kodak knew there was a market there and were able to do that. Also, in other news, I mean, this is not officially announced yet, but it's a common enough rumor. Kodak's opening a lab in Queens. Yeah, yeah, they they're opening up new labs everywhere, which is you know um, part of their sort of mission to democratize film making in general. I mean, I talked to Steve Bellamy, who uh, was recently hired as the chief of I forget exactly what his position was, but he was president of subdivision of Kodak, and he talked a lot about how there was going to be a much stronger effort to building up new labs across America for younger filmmakers to start experimenting with film, which is why why I ask if, you know, bringing back Ektachrome and Kodachrome could in fact be the opposite because if Quinn Tarantino heard that Kodachrome was coming back, he would, I'm sure he would just go gaga for it and make a movie with that Kodachrome stock. I don't know if he would. Kodachrome isn't in this interesting position because it's so narrow latitude I mean, yeah, I would love it if Quentin Tarantino did a Kodachrome feature, but you never, like, Kodachrome and Ektachrome are really learning stocks. They're phenomenal learning stocks because of the thing you get out of the camera, you don't need to tell us any of the video, you don't need to bring a print, you can stick it in a projector and watch it on the wall and learn everything you need to learn seeing it like that. And the speed of that process is what's so exciting. You never saw a lot of reversal in theatricals with the exception of Spike Lee. Gotcha. Well, that's exciting. It's yeah. exciting to I, hopefully I can experiment with film soon. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think no film school should try and do a the return of Ektachrome kind of thing where we get our hands on some. Kodak, if you're listening, give Send us. Send it over. It. Make it happen. And then the other piece of news, which wasn't a CES announcement, is KitSplit buys camera lens uniting two gear sharing communities. So as everybody knows, the film gear rental market is changing. Like for years, you just, there was no information. There were rental houses, but they wouldn't put their prices online because they wanted to negotiate. So you had to call a bunch of people and get a bunch of different bids and it was a lot of work. Or you could try and rent from like an owner operator, but there wasn't like a central meeting place for all the owner operators. So you like either put a ad on Craigslist or you called people you know who owned the gear you needed and then you had to do scheduling and insurance. It was a hassle. Now, There are a whole bunch of competitors in the space trying to revolutionize that and bring like an Airbnb model, 
to camera gear rentals. So there's kit split and share grid and camera lens. And what they let you do is put up the gear you have and see what's available. And, and it hopefully is going to bring rental prices down sort of across the board because now there's more inventory around um, and make everything easier for the end user. To make it even easier for the end user, KitSplit has bought Camera Lens and is going to merge the two communities, integrate Camera Lens into the KitSplit community. So there's going to be a larger pool of equipment available, and there's going to be a lot better communication between everyone in that community to give better data, which is going to allow for better scheduling and better planning and a whole lot of really cool things. So that's really exciting. I, I don't want it to get to the point where we have one market. Like right now, there's more or less just Airbnb for sharing your apartment. I don't think we need to get there in the film industry. I hope Kit Split and ShareGrid don't merge. I think a little competition between the two is probably good. But it is very exciting how easy it is getting to either rent your gear out to other people or to rent gear when you're looking for it. Great. Well, thanks, Charles. Let's move on to some grant deadlines. If you live on Australia, which I think some of you do, thank you to our listeners in Australia, or if you're looking to go to Australia to make a documentary, which is something that I would definitely be down to do, Screen Australia has a documentary development grant deadline coming up on January 13th. If you're looking to develop an Australian documentary or co-production, you could get up to $30,000 for development from Screen Australia. Screen Australia's documentary development program assists experienced documentary makers to achieve planned outcomes for the development of their projects. So this could include further research, writing the next draft of a script or treatment, strategic shooting and or editing to attract marketplace development or production finance, or even compiling a sizzle reel. And the Doha Film Institute is now looking to provide creative and financial assistance to filmmakers from Qatar. So if you live in Qatar, the deadline is rolling. But if you're applying internationally, the deadline is January 23rd. And you can apply for funding, development, production, or pre-production. And last but not least, ScreenCraft Screenwriting Fellowship has their deadline on January 15th. This is a fellowship that offers a $1,000 writing grant, six months of one-on-one consultations with the ScreenCraft staff and mentors, and meetings with lit agents. The winners receive ongoing professional support and a special trip to Los Angeles for meetings and introductions to key entertainment executives, producers, and representatives. To apply, all you have to do is submit your feature film script or TV pilot script on the website's application page. And now for some festival deadlines. One of our personal favorites here in Brooklyn is Rooftop Films, which has a deadline of January 13th coming right up. Um, We've told you to submit to this festival many times over because it's one of the most unique and, I think, atmospheric festivals in the United States. They screen all of their films on rooftops or outdoors in public spaces. And the tickets are cheap and the people are good. Yeah, and it takes place in New York. Um, That's part of the reason why the rooftop thing is so cool, because if you've ever been on a rooftop in New York in the summer, you know it's a cool thing to do. Uh, Every filmmaker who submits also receives two free tickets to any screening at the series, and all artists who apply are entered into a sort of rooftop filmmakers fund, which awards grants every year to be put towards future films and videos. Northwest Fest has a deadline on January 15th. This is Canada's longest-running nonfiction film festival. It takes place in Alberta from May 5th to 14th, 2017, and there are cash prizes. The 40th Asian American International Film Festival has a deadline on January 20th. This takes place at the Made in NY Media Center in New York from July 26th to August 5th. 
They claim to be the first and longest-running festival dedicated to screening works by media artists of Asian descent from any nationality and about the Asian community. And the International Wildlife Film Festival has a deadline on January 20th. It takes place in Montana in April, and it's 40 years running, the longest-running wildlife film festival in the world. It recognizes films about the natural world, environmental and conservation films, and issue-driven explorations of Earth and its inhabitants, namely us and the animals. Animals. And finally, the New Orleans Film Festival, this is a big one, has a deadline on January 20th. This is the early bird deadline. It takes place from October 11th to 19th in New Orleans, and it's been named by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the 50 film festivals worth the entry fee six years running, and it's an Academy Award qualifying festival, so that's a big one. Apparently, it's really fun, too. They have, like, huge parties and old Louisiana mansions and any excuse to go to New Orleans is a good one and this week on ask no film school we have sort of another sciencey film question it, for, it is the perfect film question for the ectochrome there you go uh, so Sean Bailey asks I recently discovered that Kodak will soon be releasing a new Super 8 camera and I've always wanted the opportunity to explore the medium of film through my DSLR, I've been able to manipulate the ISO and aperture and white balance to produce shots that would look warmer or cooler depending upon what I was looking for. Are there ways you can manipulate those elements in a film camera? So, Sean, that's a great question. Uh, film cameras allow you to change those things, but it's not as simple as it is on a digital camera. You can't just go into a menu. With white balance, for instance, it's a matter of which stock you buy and you buy stocks that are either natively balanced for tungsten or for daylight. If you want to shoot tungsten film and take it out under daylight, you can use an 85 filter, and most filmmakers are sure there's always an 85 filter in their kit. If you have daylight stock, you can technically use an 80A filter to make it work under tungsten, but that's less common since it cuts a lot of light out, and daylight stocks tend to be pretty slow because daylight is much brighter than tungsten light. So taking a slow stock, putting a filter that cuts a lot of light on it, you basically don't have enough speed to expose the image properly under tungsten. ISO is also usually baked into the stock. So you decide at purchase, do I want like a 50 ISO or a 500 ISO? But you can also change the way it's processed, pushing it or pulling it, pulling it out of the bath sooner, or leaving it in the bath longer, However, that doesn't just change exposure, it also has some other image drawbacks. If you push your stock, say a stop, and you take a 500 ISO stop stock and you push it to 1,000, you're gonna see an increase of grain. Since you specifically mentioned Super 8, you're gonna see a big bump in grain if you push it a stop. If you wanna make like slight warm or cool changes, you can often manipulate those things during the film to video transfer. Since film has a really wide amount of data, and doing it when you're transferring from the video to the film file, what we would have called telecine back in the tape days, but now is often done as a scan, is a really great time to rebalance the image and manipulate that warm, cool contrast. One thing a lot of people don't know is even though your DSLR lets you manipulate warm and cool balance, the sensor itself is natively daylight balanced. You're not changing anything about the sensor when you change that, you're just changing the way the image is processed by the camera. And so that's the same thing you'd be doing if you manipulated it at the transfer. Also, there are a lot of filmmakers who don't like to manipulate it in the transfer and want to do everything with filters. So there's a wide variety of very finely gradated filters if you want to do a little bit warmer or a little bit cooler. Uh, in terms of exposure, 
in addition to push and pull processing, most film cameras have a traditional aperture, so you can just open or close to set the exposure that way. Hopefully, we'll be seeing that Kodak Super 8 camera soon. Good luck with your first film projects. Let us know how they go. Great. Thanks, Charles. Moving on to some movie openings this week. Starting on January 13th on HBO Now, you can check out The Visit, which is M. Night Shyamalan's latest movie. He's coming out with a new movie called Split this month with James McAvoy about a mentally unstable man with 23 different personalities who abducts some girls. People were surprised to see that the trailer actually uh, looks pretty good. So they shouldn't be too surprised because this movie, The Visit, came out in 2015 and was pretty much heralded as a success. Many critics say it could mark a permanent return to form for M. Night after movies like The Happening, Lady in the Water, and Avatar, which were pretty bad to say the least, but it remains to you to judge that for yourself. The film is about two siblings who become increasingly frightened by their grandparents' disturbing behavior while visiting them on vacation. And coming to Netflix on January 13th, in contrast to some of Shyamalan's films, one horror flick that is undeniably good is Robert David Mitchell's It Follows. It came out back in 2014, and it started this kind of trend of really good artsy indie horror flicks that we're still seeing continue today. The premise is what made the film so enticing in the first place, though. It's about a young woman who has sex with a dude she barely knows and unknowingly contracts the worst STD possible, a physical, supernatural spirit that haunts her everywhere she goes. That premise is truly fulfilled by Mitchell's strange retro vision, which makes it kind of like a smart, modern slasher that's really fun to watch. And it's pretty scary, too. Also coming to Netflix on January 13th is Aquarius. I saw Aquarius at New York Film Festival this year, where it was considered to be one of the standouts in a really great lineup. The movie's about a 65-year-old cancer survivor and widow who is the last remaining resident in an apartment complex in Brazil where she's been living for many decades. A construction company wants to buy her out, but she refuses, and a pretty epic struggle ensues. What's even more interesting is how the movie became sort of a political symbol for many Brazilians in a time of strife, as the main character's plight mirrored their own. It culminated in a protest on the red carpet at their premiere at Cannes, where the cast and crew railed against the suspension of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, holding up signs that read, Brazil is experiencing a coup d'etat, and 54,501,118 votes set on fire. You can read more about the accidental politics of Aquarius in an article I wrote covering the Q&A. Also coming out this week is a movie that is very enjoyable. If you saw Mike Mills' Beginners... You know that his work is poignant and that he has a knack for dialogue. And that's because his best films are deeply personal. So Beginners, which he made a couple years ago, was about his father, who came out as gay later in life. And his new film, which opens on January 13th, is called 20th Century Women. It's about his single mother who owned a boarding house that was essentially a commune. Mills was raised in this environment by an additional two mothers who were aspiring feminists. And the film is about his teenage experiences navigating the raucous world of the 70s. The characters are really fully realized people. They, they feel like people you know. And Annette Benning gives the performance of her lifetime, everybody agrees on this, as Mills' mother. And to make everything better, it has the best and most awkward conversation about menstruation that you will ever witness in your life. <laughs> in a movie or in 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 I don't think you can top it in your life. Oh man, you know, every every conversation yeah, about that's a good goal. is so 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 good to have. And just a quick reminder about an event tonight from Liz herself. 
The Cinema Eye honors are tonight. That's Cinema Eye, as in your eye that you look out of, not me, I. It's her favorite film event of the year, along with the TFI Interactive. The results will have come out by the time this show airs, so we'll bring them to you on the site. And with that, we will bring the show to a close. As always, you can read all of this and more on nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes if you enjoy the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. Jim, Jim. <laughs> and I am E.L. Booter on Twitter. And I am at Charles Hain on Twitter. And you can follow all of us collectively at No Film School if you so choose. What you should choose. It's the right choice. It's the right choice. So thanks, and we'll see you next week before we go to Sundance. 